Hey, welcome to Nice Work, podcast of the Super Nice Club. I'm your host, Todd Brilliant, and we are just trying. We, uh, you know, you, listener, and me, and and lots of others, uh, trying to make the world 10% nicer. That's the Super Nice Club, uh, by every means necessary. Today, we're joined by the wildly talented, super nice artist out of Raleigh, North Carolina, Taylor White. Taylor is a street artist, a figurative muralist. She's she's crazy talented, like I just said, but also brings to bear a real learned and studied professionalism. Now, if you're a creative, you're an artist, and you're you're trying to up your game when it comes to making a career out of your passion, this is a great episode for you. Taylor is someone who has a lot of great tips, so listen in. As far as her work goes, she combines refined classical techniques as a muralist, as a street artist, with bright, unexpected color choices. Uh, Her work explores the way in which we experience the formless chaos of potential through being and how the order we inhabit can sometimes, maybe all the time, dissolve backwards into the incredible complexity from which it emerged. Yeah. Taylor has exhibited all over the world and crib, crib, contributed, tough word, contributed to events for Juddy Roller, Outer Space Project, Richmond Mural Project, Murals in the Market, Branded Arts, Bling Cincinnati, Scope Miami Beach. She's also done really, really neat augmented reality murals. I wish we'd had time to talk to her about that. But like I said, we do talk a lot about the business of art as a real career. So many good tips and takeaways. Um, We rap about chaos theory and stochastic resonance, how great Raleigh, North Carolina is, and of course, share some visions for a nicer world. I hope you like it. We'd love to hear from you if you do. I would love to hear from you if you don't. I'm lonely. I would love to hear from you. Here's something important. Little PSA here. Taylor has a big show in Raleigh on June 11th. So if you know people near in Raleigh, Will you please send them to Taylor's show? Just just pass this podcast on to them or by, by clicking whatever you need to click to make that happen. Uh, I, it's a lot of work. You got to drag a mouse or a finger on a touchpad or a touchscreen. It's like, I know it's a hassle. It's like using the, um, what, like a blinker on your car, right? You got to move your whole wrist just to make sure other people don't swerve away and die in a horrible, fiery wreck. Anyway, the result of your finger sliding is that you're being super nice by inviting your friends to experience great art in a great city with great people. So just do it. This is the 69th episode of Nice Work. And I know y'all love the part where I talk about cool things having to do with the episode number, but I'm gonna try something new today. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take the book I'm reading and flip to the page number of the current episode, that's 69, and read something interesting. We're not interesting. Whatever's there. So today, that is this. Just from being marginally better, like running a quarter mile, a fraction of a second faster, some people get paid a lot more. Orders of magnitude more. Leverage magnifies these differences even more. Being at the extreme in your art is very important in the age of leverage. 
That's from a book called The Almanac of Naval Ravikant, whose name I probably butchered. Anyway, uh, that's page 69 of the book that I'm currently reading. So far, the book's kind of a mixed bag, but the gems are very gemmy. <laughs> okay, let's do this. Turn off everything else, tune out the rest of the world, and drop into nice work with Taylor White. Taylor, Taylor White, welcome to the Nice Work Podcast. Glad to have you on here. What is going on? Man, I'm just happy to be here. We're going to do something different. We're going to just start with the most important thing of all, because some people, and you know who you are, you don't listen to the whole podcast because, you know, you have other things to do. You have a show coming up. Where is it at and when is it? Uh, what I is do. it? I'm, I'm based in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I'm self-producing a solo exhibition in a rented downtown storefront. It's something that I've thought about doing for years, and um, the opportunity just kind of presented itself to me this year. And I just thought, you know, why the hell not? Let's do it. So where exactly is it and what are the dates? Uh, the date is the date for the opening for those in Raleigh or excited enough to travel to Raleigh. It's June 11th. I'm going to open it to collectors from 5 o'clock to 7 o'clock. And then 7 to 10 will be basically general admission. And more information is at taylorwhite.art. Is that correct? Taylorwhite.art. And also um, I'm posting a lot of updates on Instagram at taylurk, T-A-Y-L-U-R-K. Both of those links are, are going to be wherever you find this podcast, folks. Okay, cool. We got this show out of the way. We'll plug it again at the end in case you forget. But, and we do have some folks out in Raleigh, and it's a bit of a drive, but there are a number of Super Nice Club members in Winston-Salem, a town mm. I love, by the way. Okay, so let's now get to who you are and what you're doing. You paint, you create, you're a visual storyteller. When did you know? When did you start? When did you get into this? When did I start? Oh, I'm like... I almost want to say it's like a cliche. I'm one of those from birth people. Uh-huh. I had a demonstrated interest and talent for rendering by the time I was two and a half. Really? So nobody got you into it? Like there wasn't like a parent that's like, you should get My into mother this. was as shocked up. as anyone. Yeah, it was sh like I got my hands on some pencils or crayons or something early on. And I, I think I still have some of those early drawings where it was like, uh, you know, I was drawing faces with like all, all the features in the right place. <laughs> I still can't do that. By, you know, by two. <laughs> you know, I mean, it didn't look exactly like a portrait, but it yeah, was, yeah. it, you know, it was a, a signal that I was observing details a little bit earlier than maybe most, uh, not just observing, but observing and then translating to paper. Yeah, it's, that's, the, that's the key, right? Mm-hmm. Is being able to translate it. Is it something when, when you were a little bit older? I don't know if you remember this or not, but when you were five, six, seven, eight, ten, did you find it a place where you would escape to? Was it was creating and drawing therapeutic for you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean it was I think it was a it was an escape up until about high school when it started to become evaluated and like a, a path to higher education. That's when it started to suck a little bit for me. But um, but before then, you know, I, I definitely retreated into my own head a lot. And, you know, I had, I would sit at the dining room table. My, my dad would bring home office paper, um, like reams of it, you know, the, the, like the stuff that the dot matrix printers. Oh yeah, the like green connected, and white stuff. Like the green and white stuff, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I would just sit there and draw pictures and talk to myself like and I guess you know make up stories out loud and everything um and that 
kind of got me through my childhood for the most part. Um, you know, I feel like I was somebody who's, you know, all my skill points got dumped into the creative aspect. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, I had to start from zero with things like charisma and social skills. So, <laughs> yeah. So you said that it sucked in high school when it became uh, something that would help you get, I'm assuming you meant like scholarships, like there's a financial aspect. All of a sudden it had, it had money value to you. How did that tweak things for you? It was a little early for money to be part of the conversation. It was more like, you know, I, I got into advanced placement art as a sophomore in high school. Um, and it's meant for juniors and seniors just to, to track them into college. But it, you know, it's, packaged with your SAT and ACT scores and stuff and right. for college admissions. And that's like one of those things where I was starting to experience being evaluated from a perspective that I didn't feel comfortable with, you know? And I, I, re I got pretty belligerent during those years. You know, I was like, I don't, you know, who are you? Like, who are you in your, what's your opinion? Like, I don't, you know, and then being compared to and competitive with my peers for being like, uh, you know, good enough. Yeah, it, it's an interesting thing about academia, isn't it? It's it's always you are competing with your peers. It's not a cooperative process. And for a lot of us, a lot of people who are in the creative world, some of the most fulfilling moments are when you are collaborating with others. Mm -hmm. uh, so in school, maybe there wasn't a lot of that. Uh, well, I had one uh, very close friend in high school who was like, we, I went to a small private school for high school and there were a few, there was like 60 people in my graduating class. And my friend was, there were, you know, there were two of us, let's okay. just say, like who were just right. above the fray in terms of, you know, skill level and creativity. And so we were both friends, friends and co competitors, you know, both of us okay. were like, yeah, of course it was healthy, but but it was also frustrating for both of us, I think. And I mean, I think the most fun we've ever had was, you know, we did a couple of collaborations together. We both had access to advanced placement as sophomores. And so we would hang out in the art room and make trouble for ourselves, you know, painted some stuff together and everything. But I mean, she was the first person that actually made me feel uncomfortable, uncomfortable about my abilities, you know, but I think that's, I think that helps you grow, to be honest. So... So it's been a few years, not that many years, since you were in high school, and oh, it's been. Is it has it been enough time where you can look back and offer any kind of advice to either people in high school or parents of high school students as to sort of how to allow young adults to move through this? Just for the record, I graduated in two thousand three, so. But yeah, I mean, I think. I think it's definitely like I'm I'm well into adulthood at this point and it's it's fine to, for me to to look back and offer advice. I don't know what you know, for a high school student, I would say like being in, embroiled in the academic process is the most frustrating part of everything, you know, but it doesn't yeah. last. You know, you should just do what you have to do as we talked about a little bit before we started recording to play the game. Mm -hmm. you know, um, and get through it and then, you know, figure out who you are. You, after high school, you went to SCAD, yes. uh, Savannah College of Art and Design. Mm -hmm. Great school, by the way. I hope it was great for you. Um, it was. It was a really great yeah, school. It's a really great school. So shout out to SCAD. Then you ended up 
kind of like all around the world. Let's do like a real quick, what happened to Taylor after high school wrap up, just so we can kind of catch people up. Because you went to, well, I don't want to say quick. it. You, you do. All right. I'll start from the top. Like graduated uh, through the heads up in the air 2003, St. Mary's. Went to SCAD. It was the only school that I applied to for some, I don't know why, for whatever reason. I think I just didn't want to go through the process of doing all of that. And I liked SCAD a lot. And at the time I thought, you know, I liked that they, I liked that they build themselves as support, you know, their university for creative careers, I think is their tagline. And it was kind of like, we will, we won't just teach you how to be an artist. We'll help you earn a living. Mm -hmm. So I thought that that was attractive. Went for, I, I, my original major was animation. Oh, that's cool. For some reason. Again, I like, I can't, I can't recall my thought process way back then, but it just seemed like I really liked their department and it seemed like something that would be fun and interesting. And it seemed like at, at the time, the only career path that might've been right for me. But then after a couple, after about a year majoring in animation, I just found it tedious and it kind of just wasn't my, wasn't, you know, the ideal output for, you know, for me. And that's what um, college is supposed to be for, right? Oh, it's absolutely. You know, I learned a change. lot. And I think a lot of my, um, a lot of the skills developed during all of those years, even if I didn't end up going through with the major, like I, I added it to my repertoire. So um, I had, you know, a great time trying it out. But end I ended up in illustration. And... Graduated from there and went to Norway immediately, just almost immediately after graduating. And I just remember at the end of school, just feeling like I wasn't interested in necessarily following everybody else to either New York or L.A. Yeah, Norway's a big jump away it's, from either spot. It's a big jump. <laughs> I remember thinking, I, I, you know, I, I had at the time not really, I'd been to Mexico at that point in time, like on a family vacation or something. And that's the extent of my international travel. And so I was like, well, you know, I think I might want to try going overseas and seeing what that's like, learn another language or something. And I ended up, it ended up being Norwegian, which ended up not being very useful. <laughs> uh, but it was a lot of fun to learn and, and everything. Um, and what were you doing over there? So the reason I went to Norway, I, I mentioned, I, I just mentioned to my mother wanting to travel overseas and my mother had managed to keep in touch with my au pair from when I was three years old. Um, and so she said, well, you should reach out to Annette. They live in Oslo. You should go visit them. I'm like, well, that sounds great. So I did that, bounced over to Norway for a couple of months. I was going to stay for a couple of months and um, go from there. So I bounced, went to Oslo. My only plan was figure out a way to be an artist for a living. Beyond that, I didn't really have any of the details outlined. So um, It was always just be an artist. You never had a backup plan. You were never like, oh, or if that doesn't work out, I'll get into finance. That was never an option. Great. No. Yeah. I mean, I suppose there was, you know, the brief moment in my rebellious high school years where I thought maybe I'd, you know, go to a regular university because everybody expected me to go to art school. 
Right. But luckily, I got over that real quick. So anyway, so I'm in Oslo and kind of shopping my, basically shopping my portfolio around and putting the word out that I was like an artist, like fresh out of college, looking for some work, you know, at the time thinking freelance. So, you know, I I went around and talked to a couple of people and ended up being the the next door neighbor of the, the, my pair and her family were, was the art director for this advertising agency that I wound up working for. Um, So it was real serendipitous. Um, I think, you know, my life has been themed on serendipity as I think back on it. There were just a lot of things, you know, a lot of it was just being in the right place at the right time and being open to the possibility of things not looking the way I planned them to. So I ended up getting a job at this ad agency as a storyboard artist slash miscellaneous illustrator. And I worked there for three years. By the end of the three years, I was ready to do something else and um really sort of felt like like I, I just needed to be painting and being a little bit more loose with my creativity because mm-hmm. i mean illustration is pretty regimented yeah it's a lot of Especially like we have we have this idea you draw it so it's you know the mechanical execution of the idea so i left my job there at the end of three years it was actually a mutual decision between my employer and I, at that point, they were having to do a lot of reconciling their finances. It was around 2008 when the world economy crashed. And I was like, well, you know, we, you know, we, we figured out why no other agency in Norway had an in-house illustrator. It's because it's expensive and <laughs> not necessarily worth the price. And so it was one of those things where, you know, it happened at precisely the right time. I was feeling it and kind of needed the you know needed the kick in order to make it make that decision because I probably would have just weighed you know molded over for another year or something that's how so many of us are though you know we do need a kick we do need to take a leap of faith at some point that's a theme that comes up a lot in this podcast is so much yeah where do people who have this and you had your career you were in art you went to school for art you're making money doing art but you're still not quite where your passion was you were you were tangential you were close yeah. and then you had yeah. to jump exactly to be this bigger thing do you remember at any point i know that you know the agency was like hey it's time to shift. And you're like, yeah, I'm ready to shift as well. Did it still feel like, oh my God, what am I going to do? It was, was there a moment there? Yeah, it, it was. I was relieved. You know, the foremost emotion I was feeling was relief. It was scary because it did mean that I was going to pack my life up and leave the country that I had lived for three years. And I still have dreams about going back like regularly, like probably once or twice a week. Not going back permanently, but just like... I left a little abruptly, so I feel like there's some incompletion for me there. But Then you'll go back. Ah, yeah. Well, that's so another one of those things. I was like, oh, I've been thinking about it for a while, so maybe this year. Nudge. You went from the top of the world, I mean, mm-hmm. sort of geographically, down to the bottom of the world, down to Australia. Down to Australia. And the way that went was I was speaking with a friend of mine from SCAD uh, this, probably the same day that I got laid off from my job and was letting her know that my plans were changing and I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. And she said, well, I just, uh, I just got a ticket to Melbourne, Australia. I'm going to be going after New Year's. You should come. And that was, that was it. I'm like, all right, well, never th- haven't, hadn't considered that, but it sounds interesting. And the working holiday visa that Australia offers to 
United States and Canada citizens. It's like a year, up to a year. I think for Can Canadians get two years, but Americans only get one. I was approved for that within two hours. So. Well, you know, the Canadians and Australians are still both into the Queen thing. We're not. I, oh, yeah, the Commonwealth. Do with Commonwealth. It, you know, yeah. Solidarity, I All suppose. Weird monarchy thing. Yeah. Anyway. Huh. Uh, <laughs> so you're in Australia at that point. You're in mm -hmm. Melbourne. Great, great, I, great place, great city. I love it. I love it. It's one yeah. of my favorite places on earth. Australia in general, but Melbourne and Sydney is actually pretty great too. It's, it's, but I have to give a little love to Perth because I have a lot of family there. So, Perth, I know you're kind of like the Sacramento of Australia, but you're loved deeply by the Super Nice Club. Well, so. WA is just some of the most beautiful oh my God. Yeah. scenery ever, anywhere. So the rest of you too, Western Australia, yeah. you're you're in the club for sure, for just sure. by virtue of your beauty. Uh, so you're in Australia, and you have a lot of shows that you did there in Melbourne, and and, and I think I'm trying to remember your your CV, uh, Victoria. You, you you did some stuff in Australia, show. -wise. I did some stuff in Australia. I definitely, I mean, I think I, the seeds for where I am now got planted in Australia, a hundred percent. So I, you know, I bopped around a little bit when I first got there and tried to find my bearings, and then you know, ran into some, I just started meeting people and it's not, you know, it happened very fast. I think there's a lot of people down there who are, you know, working holiday too, kind of into the creative scene and everything. So it didn't take me long to immerse myself in that, put my, put my work in a couple of one of those like group shows that were a little bit open submission kind of things. Mm -hmm. And from there, I was, just, you know, it's just like word of mouth, you know, it's like, oh, you should meet this person. You should meet that person. I ended up meeting uh, the guy who runs Juddy Roller, which today is, you know, the foremost street art, I guess, agency would be the term. Uh, mm -hmm. Like they do massive projects all over Australia. And at the time it was just like a, a dude with, a dream and a, and a cafe and it was like oh we have these we're having these laneway parties and you know they'd have a laneway party and they would do have all these artists come in and do graffiti so they'd have like new art mm -hmm. you know and um it was like oh yeah you know you should you should market yourself as a street artist just put your work on the street and i'm like well f they didn't teach you that at scad come on like I, this is per that's perfect like I, I love the idea you know it fit, you know, I, I didn't feel like, I didn't really know the meaning of being a, an artist or like a free agent as an artist. Mm -hmm. Like I thought it meant, mm -hmm. you know, being a painter and then, then you were in the academic art world a little bit and you relied on funding and that felt annoying to me. Um, or you were a commercial artist and you worked for a, a firm, you know. Which you had done. Which right? I had done. Um, so I got, I got to ask you, before we get into your work, and I want to talk mm -hmm. about your work, work, um, I'm curious now, like you, you, you went to SCAD, uh, your parents were on board, right? Mm -hmm. For you pursuing SCAD. You went to Norway, uh, you had a professional career there. And then one day you're like, Hey, um, I'm out of the corporate life. I'm wandering around Australia. Did you get support there for your parents? Were they nervous for you? How did that, what did that look like? You know, the great thing about my parents is if they ever had reservations about me doing anything, uh, pursuing in terms of pursuing art, they didn't tell me. That's fantastic. You know, yeah. I mean, they they were always like, I think you know they their their foremost concern was that I was, you know, healthy and and financially stable, and of course, and I had pretty good financial education from them. Growing up, it was almost a little annoying. It was like stop trying to talk to me about money. Like, 
you know, <laughs> but, but now that I have a business and am financially stable and have the freedom to do all of these things that I'm doing, I'm just like, Oh my God, they did me such a favor. Um, so that's, that's great. I'm, I ask about that because I know it's really common for when you get out of college or out of high school, you don't have to go to college. You might mm -hmm. do an apprenticeship or do your own thing, you know, whatever, whatever makes you work for you. I feel like people should, probably shouldn't go to college nine yeah. times out of ten, but there's, another there's a lot of argument. Yeah, there's a lot of argument for that coming mm -hmm. out of Silicon Valley and, and other areas, you know, uh, and the return of the apprenticeship mm -hmm. and um, free learning you can get online and experientially. Anyway, so, you know, a lot of younger people go in to their first career after high school and then it can be kind of, it can feel for, for too many like, ah, I got to stick this out. Like, you know, this is what my parents pay for. They put $100,000 into my college. Now I'm in this program and I'm stuck. But you didn't get stuck. You got out after three years. And I love hearing that story because I want people to feel free to ditch everything that you thought you had to be. Even if there's a huge investment of your time, of your parents' money, maybe it isn't right. It's okay to change your mind or veer into a direction that's more aligned with your passions. I, I agree. I mean, the one the one piece of advice that I did get out of college was like, when you get a job, stick with it for a, at least a year, if not two, because you'll, yeah, so it'll you be know. easier to get other jobs later. So that was, you know, that was part of it. But, I, you know, the, I feel like de people definitely get trapped by the sunk cost fallacy where it's like, I just, I just spent three years and $50,000 on this education and this major, and I don't really want to do it. And, but I'm, you know, two weeks from graduating. So, you know, I think you're better off finding what's right for you rather than going through with something that you know is not right for you just because you already put your resources into it. Like, you know, whatever. Agreed. You can always get more money. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna get into your work now. and I'm gonna lead off getting into your work by pointing to my hat. See this hat? This is the second best-selling Super Nice Club hat of all time. Discontinued it just because... Gotta keep it limited. I, you know this color combo here? Mm-hmm. It's like a pink and blue. But yeah, it's like kind a blue of a fuchsia and, and teal. Is that gray or black? Uh, it's gray, but the point is it's kind of a, let's call it pink and blue sure. for conversation's sake. And you can't help but look at your work, your murals, and notice that they dominate, right? Mm -hmm. It's got to be a common question to you. I thematically chose my hat based on what I saw in your murals. Wow. Isn't that great? Thoughtful podcaster, right? Yeah, I like that. All right. So talk to me about, um, the pink and blue. Tell me why. Um, I think it was, it, for me, represented the greatest balance of the masculine and the feminine in the work. Um, cause I know that it's like, it's, it's quite bold and sometimes intense, you know, for better or worse, not necessarily like in a bad way, but just like it, it, it draws attention and everything. And I thought like the, I had experimented with the different types of colors and stuff and thought it just looked like a, like a guy did it. But I also so like, don't do soft, delicate work either, you know, go to Taylor White dot art right now mm -hmm. while we're talking everybody not you the people okay. listening later you you've already been on the site you know i know yeah, all yeah. my work looks uh, like, yeah listeners taylor white dot art unless you're driving or you have a passenger that's cool too so you can kind of like pull over this is like a yeah this is let's make this an experience this isn't just a podcast this is an immersive this is augmented reality audio style taylor white dot art to to show what we're looking at uh okay so go ahead you felt like it was maybe the stylistically was was not what you are would you consider it your signature now or is it something that you would veer from i i will veer from it i mean i think the this the sort of the brightness of the colors and the mm -hmm. 
unexpected like color relationships are something that I really enjoy playing with. You know, I would do, you know, for a while I was doing unrealistic skin tones and in my, my work now I'm doing more realistic ones, which, you know, may or may not be a big risk right about now, but it's, it's all about, I, I get really excited about the way colors change appearance based on which colors are next to them. Mm-hmm. And I'm always interested in finding new color combinations that just look really cool together. Um, and so for a while, you know, it was pink and blue because sometimes it came down to economics. Like it's what I had. I have a lot of pink and a lot of blue spray paint. Like, you know, I was like, I did yeah. one, you know, my Richmond mural project in 2015, my original design had a lot of red in it and they messed up my paint order. And so oh. I didn't get all the paint that I asked for. And so I had to skip, like scrounge from whatever was available and it was a fuckload of purple. And so I ended up carrying home all of that paint and it was just, it was a lot of purple. So I made purple work for a while. And that's the story you'll hear on big mural projects. Mm-hmm. There's usually every muralist, am I right? A lot of them are street artists will have a story of like, well, all I had was, was lime green. Yeah. So, I mean, supplies get expensive you know. and you don't want to yeah. keep buying more because it takes up a lot of space and a lot of, you know, street artists especially are pretty resourceful and they don't want to spend a whole lot of money on the, on the, do you the have projects. a, uh, do you have a paint sponsor? I don't. Shout out. I don't. All right. So let's get you a paint sponsor. Somebody let's, out there. Let's get me a paint can sponsor. Can somebody out there sponsor Taylor White with paint? If you're listening, you happen to have connections with a spray paint company. Yeah. Uh, what's your desire? Who would be your dream company? I mean, I I, I know that. Uh, let's just put it out there. Who knows? You know, I, I like working with, you know, Montana. I think their gold line is my favorite. Um, I know that the Spanish MTN brand is maybe more available and spon- and is pretty good about sponsoring a lot of events and things. I don't know. I mean All right, so Spanish who, who if, you, if you don't want Ma- if you don't want Montana to grab I've her, heard, you better reach you know, out. I've heard of some new brands that I'm curious about, but I just, you know, the the paint, the quality of the paint has to be good and they can't be too fumey. Like some of those just don't smell good. Okay. So Not about smelling it, but you know, fumey is like, yeah. you know, I'm getting brain cancer and making myself stupider if I Use that stuff. So if you sponsor, if, you, if you're a paint company listening to this, and I'm sure we have quite a few uh, paint company employees listening to this podcast. If you sponsor... Sorry, Taylor, I called yourself uh, Fumi and... We'll, we'll, you we'll know, send you a super nice hat. All right? Yeah. Custom, any, any color you want. Any combo you want, I'll make it for you. Paint Maybe company. I'll send you, you know. some art if you give me a sponsorship. I don't know. Um, so murals are pretty permanent. I mean, they're not permanent. People can paint over them, but they're pretty, they're, they're, they're bold statements. Have you ever had a client not be satisfied with your finished product? Um, Cause I know you present drawings and they're going to sure. see what it's going to look like. Right. But have you ever had anybody kind of go, oh, no, what I was really thinking, I'm but whatever. I'm to think. I mean, I, I did have one client, I won't name them, that came in about halfway through my process and at the like at the time, I was like, "This is great! Like, really happy with it. It's looking like cool." And the client goes, comes in and goes, "Huh?" <laughs> and that just fucking ruined my day. You know? I was yeah, like, that's not that's not very. You know, like you don't. Yeah. Like it's not what you expected. I'm like, it is what I. It is exactly what I presented to you. Um, 
When I ended up making, you know, we negotiated some changes that I could make on the spot and that was fine, but it really like, uh, it completely changed my feeling about the project and the, and the end about the finished product. Um, and then I, I, you know, recently I had another client that did a, a similar thing where they, um, you know, I presented an idea and they, and I was doing it digitally because it was during COVID. Right. So the idea was that I was going to provide them with a digital file. And because I was doing digital artwork, the way the work looked was naturally different. Of course. Yeah. And they, even though the work almost perfectly resembled what I described it to be, it still didn't look like they expected it to look. And that became problematic. Um, and that was a little bit more of an ordeal. Because it was like three days before the deadline. And this was a big piece. It was, yeah. Um, and I had never, I had not much experience working with, you know, large format digital stuff. So, and you know, at the end of the day, you want the client to be happy because they're going to be the ones living right. with the work. But it's also like, you know, I always try to communicate the cost benefit analysis to me doing mm -hmm. the changes that they want. Yeah. And over time, you know, I actually ended up, you know, I rewrite my contract every time I do a, a project because something always comes up where I'm like, oh, I wish that was in the agreement. So one of the things was like, if you want last minute changes, it's going to be like $125 an hour for me to do those changes. Something punitive. I think it's actually even higher than that. Now, this is the stuff that's so great. I think a lot of artists, you know this from your friends and peers, they have a hard time figuring out this part of it, the contract. Like, what should mm -hmm. I charge? How much? What am I worth? And they're like... So many artists give stuff away, basically. Yeah, right? it's a problem. Um, it's a huge problem. Don't give your stuff away, okay? Don't give paintings away. Don't trade them for records or, or whatever. You're worth it. But I, I noticed when your team reached out to me uh, about this podcast, I thought, damn, you know, not only is she a talented artist with a thoughtful message, but her team is super on point. See, it just spoke to a level of professionalism in you, and I think it can be helpful, hopefully, to aspiring artists listening to hear kind of more about that, how you assembled such a sharp team, you know, and I'm talking to you, Nicole, and Nick, and Aaron. Do you feel like your approach to getting business and doing that is different than your peers? Where did you, where did you learn to sell yeah, yourself? And like that's that? evolved over time. Um, okay. And, you know, at a certain point came when I realized that outsourcing tasks was just so much better than trying to do them all myself. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, because I, I spent a lot of my early years just kind of like not doing things because it was too, like, it was too much for me to do. And then I realized mm -hmm. I could hire other people to do those things. It's like, wow, that's great. So, I mean, that that came with a certain level of, like, certain amount of success and having, you know, the finances. And then the, not only the finances, but the, the, the confidence that that money spent would will come around. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because I think a lot of people get, a lot of artists especially get spooked about spending money because they're like, they think of it as finite. And if I spend the money, it's going to be really hard to get it back. And the idea is that like, if you spend it wisely, you're investing in growing your business. And it is a business. I think a lot of artists too don't, don't know how to compartmentalize themselves because it's it's such a self-identity thing. Like all artists are, like feel to their core that they are artists. They're not just people who do art. They're not, you know, if I was a, if I'm a graphic designer, 
maybe that's maybe it's a little bit easier for me to comp- for me to be like Taylor the graphic designer versus Taylor like the, the human being. So it's easier to like apply that to apply business sensibility to that. But when you're a painter or a visual artist, especially when you work for yourself, it's like, you know, I've done art all my life and suddenly I'm monetizing it. And I think the line there there can be some like a guilt about that for a lot of people, especially people who have you know, shame around money. Right. At the end of the day, like if you want to earn a living, you have to learn how to be a business. Um, it's definitely uh, one of the eternal struggles in the art world is balancing that where you feel like, can I be true to myself and my art vision and also live in the commercial world? And I think the answer is different for everyone. It's different for, it's definitely different for for everyone. It gets easier when you kind of start to just change, slightly change your mindset around around it. It's like, okay, why well, I, I am a business? I I communicate like I'm representing a business mm-hmm. when I communicate to clients and and everything. You know, I don't. It's not colloquial. I'm not like. I mean, I'm I'm pretty easy to relate to, and you know, I'm not like super buttoned up and formal. But I'm, you know, I I don't answer emails after seven, like that kind of thing. Amen. Like I don't. Yeah, totally. You know. If people get that, everybody, don't, don't do it. Don't answer emails after just seven. Don't it's, set the precedent that you're always available because people will treat you like you're always available and it'll and drain you and then you'll start to be become resentful mm-hmm. and then it just doesn't, it'll tank your enthusiasm. So, you know, that if kind of thing, a, like have a, have a contract and, and it's okay to refine it. You know, you want to be, you want to be true to your word. You don't, you want to have a contract that you're comfortable with and then you stick to it. Like I've definitely had times where I've been like, I should have charged more for this because what I'm being asked to do is greater than what I thought when I quoted you, but this is what we agreed to. So I'm going to fulfill on that. And next time I'll know, and I'll change my contract for my next client. And then I'll add these provisions that will protect me from having to go through this bullshit again. You know, I've everything that I do in my business has been trial and error. You know, I've had an experience that has led me to include this, provision or that provision in my contract i charge more in july and august to do murals because i don't want to be out there in fucking 90 oh, degree heat. heat for for less money than what i would charge this isn't is not the case all the time but generally speaking like if i'm getting client or if i'm getting requests for murals and they happen in peak summer like i have come very close to killing myself in the past because i didn't i didn't know to like you know it it's wear and tear on your body and it, that matters. You know, it takes me, Mm -hmm. it takes years off my life. You know, if I'm out there like, and I don't take into consideration that it's a severe weather day and I get dehydrated and sick, then, you know, that takes time away from what I could be spending making more art for other people. So I have to calculate that. If you guys don't totally can't visualize this a lot of times and jump in here, but you know, muralist street artists are working on, Vertical walls mm-hmm. that are right out in the sun. Taylor's probably up on a lift, right? Going up and down mm-hmm. on a lift, just blazing directly. And there's usually what underneath blacktop, mm-hmm. right? It's usually blacktop beneath you. So if it's 100 degrees out, it could be 130 where they're working. So it is, mm-hmm. it is absolutely brutal. I watched the video. I think it was Mexico City. There was a, a mural competition or a you know get together on a, a giant wall and these different artists and they were had to it was in the summertime and there weren't enough lifts and they were sort of competing for them trying to get them and it just looked awful 
so yeah, and you should charge more. In, in these festival settings too, like uh, I think artists are willing to go through a lot more. And mm-hmm. I don't want to. I'm going to use the word exploitative loosely because it is a little bit of that. It's like you you get put through a, a lot for a little when you're going to these things. And I mean, I think the the value in it is that you know the ability to be with and paint with other artists, friends of yours, artists that you like and respect and want to meet like that. There is value in that. And that's, that's kind of immeasurable, but it's also like you're working mm-hmm. at a very, your the expectations of you are high. You're working in a short amount of time. And so you're ended up, you end up putting in long hours and doing a lot of stuff, working in the rain, working in the hot sun because you're there, like, and you have no, no choice. Um, and a lot mm-hmm. of times you don't get paid for it. And it is kind of a matter of like artists being willing to be put through the ringer to get attention for their work. Um, it's a marketing expense. You're not getting paid, it, but you're it hoping is a marketing that expense. it is. I mean, there's, you know, there's right. more ways, there's more than one way to get paid. And I don't want to complain about festivals being unpaid opportunities because they're obviously there's value in it. But you have to be kind of aware of what you're trading and what you're getting for what you're trading. And then it's up to you at that point when you're aware of it. You're like, okay, well, I'm working for free, but I'm getting this, that, and the other thing in return. And also I'm working for free, so therefore this is my line. This is what I'm not going to do, you know? Right. Um, you reminded me a minute ago, it's been about something. You were talking about more realistic skin tones and how maybe that can be a little problematic. Uh, and I took that as just having to do with, and maybe I was wrong, just sort of our sensitivity, our rightful sensitivity around race right now in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking with a guest, uh, my dear friend, Lucienne Allen, whose grandmother was was besties with Frida Kahlo. We were talking about Diego Rivera. Uh, folks, give, give that podcast a listen when you're done with this one. Uh, Lucienne Allen, it's a great podcast if you're interested in the life of Frida Kahlo, if you're interested in, what do you call it? Not murals. Frescoes? Yeah, he's fresco. yeah, if you're interested in frescoes, we talk about frescoes and the difference between frescoes and, and other types of murals. Give it a listen. But Diego was about as activist as an artist can get. Do you ever feel like it's your responsibility to be an activist with your art? Do you get pressured? Do you ever get asked to paint a certain viewpoint or not paint a certain viewpoint? Is that because street art, mural art is hugely expressive. Mm-hmm. There's that giant message there. Bigger, I would say bigger than almost anything other than maybe a, you know, a book or a film. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I've never actually felt like pressured to express a certain view over another view. I usually, you know, I usually try to be delicate about that. Like, where if I'm asked to participate in a project that I don't feel comfortable attaching myself to, I'll just mm-hmm. politely thank the person and say that I'm not available. You know, I'm not. I, I, pretty much won't be disingenuous in participating in, in projects that I don't agree with, and I, and I'm also. Like political activism isn't where my values are, you know, in terms of what I want to um, portray. Like I'm more in, into, you know, what it means to be a human. And I think like at the, the like sort of the root, I, I think that my interests are kind of at the root of where all of these world problems stem from. And I don't necessarily like feel like expressing my opinion about a particular world problem is in line with that, you know. I don't know if that made any sense, but... No, it does. I mean, it did to me. I'll, I'll tell you what I heard, and you can tell sure. me if it was somewhat accurate. What I heard was, you know, uh, looking at who and what we are and, and, as humans, mm-hmm. which is 
very complex. It's beautiful and scary. Uh, introspection there can lead to a lot of positive results. Absolutely. I mean, I think we're all spiritual beings. You know, I, I know that some people might, I think most people agree with that on some level. And so that's that's kind of where I do most of my examination on the molecular level or on the you know, soul level, um, because I think that I think that we all are sort of we are inclined to forget that when we get wrapped up in world politics. Um, and you know, there are things that are very important to pay attention to. Don't get me wrong, but at the current moment, at least, my aim is to help people get back in touch with their core of who they are as a human being, and not kind of all the words that they attach to themselves. I, th- I think it's I think it's beautiful. I think it definitely is resonant in the work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to use that to leap into something just a little bit a little bit deeper, maybe. Sure. Which is a fascinating topic that you brought up in a conversation, which is stochastic resonance. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's interesting. Maybe I'm just super nerdy, and other people are just going to glaze over, you know, which is cool. Just you can fast forward. It's it's a podcast, uh, but it's my podcast, damn it! And I heard you talk about this. So, what is stochastic resonance, and and why does it interest you? Oh goodness! So I'm not going to explain it in a way that's not going to make a physicist laugh. But that's um, okay. We don't need that. The the basic principle, if you if you were to see it visually, and I actually have seen it visually. Manifested. I had a friend of mine who was actually running an experiment on stochastic resonance, and the way it looked was you have like a this this peat. So you have like a petri, a petri dish. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to paint a picture for you so you can see how it goes. And you have these these molecules inside a petri dish, and the molecules are electrically charged. And through the process of observation, you'll see like you know say every thirty seconds, yeah, the molecules are in perfect perfect order like flower of life order you look at it and you see this like these this sort of the sacred geometry of it and then all of a sudden they'll all start to vibrate and they'll all start to go out of order and they'll bounce around the petri dish in complete chaos and they'll do this for a little while and then they'll go right back into order and this is like the principle is that this is how everything works so that's a, a like a micro level observation of basically how the world is it's like a it's a fluctuation between states of order and states of chaos and the fact is that like you know not no one state is necessarily bad i think that the like chaotic moments have a tendency to freak us out and we we as humans are we seek order like we always want to categorize, define, structure, build, clean, like all of those things. And nature kind of exists in a state of of pull, pulling us back into like a complex state and a less ordered state. And they're all like they're both they're both needed. Like you, like the chaos mm-hmm. represents to me like the 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 unknown. Like we were talking about the leap of faith, like the risk, like the you know, the putting having one foot off the cliff and being willing to to fall in in pursuit of what is available out there that you don't know. I mean, I think we we don't. There's so much more that we don't know than what we do know, and I think that the and it's not awesome. Oh, it's so awesome. It's, awesome! it's so exciting! It's like okay, well, I'll never run out of things to work on, like to to work out in my work because there's so much yeah. that we don't know, and the ordered state is like me, you know, 
I'm, I'm attempting to put this idea into an ordered state by speaking about it. Even though in my head, it's like all, it's like the molecules bouncing around. I'm like, you know, and, and, and not being able to put it in order appropriately causes frustration, you know? You know, you can, you, like once you kind of get a picture of the concept, you can go like, oh yeah, like that completely makes sense in, in this context of this thing that I'm observing right now or whatever. So yeah. that's what I'm, you know, that's what I, I, I'm into, you know, even making, making art itself is the act of ordering element. You know, I have, you know, you have your raw materials and then you are ordering those things and you like, you're ordering the materials plus your skill, plus your concept and it's all an act of attempting to make sense of whatever like raw soup that you have swirling around inside you or whatever so that's that's kind of why i i mean i i've ultimately embraced that that's part of the process and that has like that's actually really changed the way my art looks it's like the process is making like taking a bunch of raw elements and making order out of them in my own way so it's not necessarily like, you know, it's not necessarily easy to describe. I mean, you could describe it and it would be like, okay, here's, here's this piece, you know, this piece of a body part and then this pink and blue shape and then it's cut with white and then it's like, oh, blah, and then there's now there's color blocks and like lines and stuff here. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's, that's fun for me, you know, making that. Do you have any videos on your site that are sort of the um, time lapse where it shows you putting a piece together? I, you know, I... I I should have more videos. I don't. They're so mesmerizing. You, you find what she. You can find what you're talking. She's talking about folks. Just go to like I don't know YouTube and type in time lapse mural. It's one of the coolest mm -hmm. things to watch. I mean I love it. You'll see uh, somebody putting tape down, lifting it up, spray painting, using the big roller brush, and it's just coming together. And it, it's often a multi-day process. Being able to see, but see it is, like the tools people use to create whatever they create, it's it's really interesting. It's I mean, so even cool. just like looking into the Instagram like reels from for artists, there's nothing more mesmerizing than like watching like some artist take some tool or some material and you're like what you know, the, you don't understand what's going on and then they start to do something with it and you're like holy crap, it's coming to look like it's looking like a face. There's something like about watching order materialize on a page Watch that really just oh, gets yeah. your spirit going that's why they're so popular you know yeah and with a spray can it's 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 it, it's just atomized materials mm -hmm. shooting out i mean you were talking about colored air and then all of a sudden oh, yeah. it's a, a, a six-story mural or whatever well, and then just using colored air you know if you don't know how to use the colored air it just comes out like then you know it looks like it's a mess <laughs> and it's like overspray and you're like i don't know how this works and then you start to use it over time and get better at it or you watch masters at work and it's like oh like you literally just made this very realistic object out of colored air just by like holding your hand a certain way or like you know masking this part of that part or knowing how to layer properly and stuff like that and it's like you know I still get excited watching artists who are really good at that kind of thing and just trying to like, yeah. and you know, my work is to look at the order and try to take it apart and figure out how it's made so that I can then implement that order in my work. 
in, in your order. And when you're doing murals, it's often not in an obvious order, you know, or a mm-hmm. lot of paintings too. You know, you're laying down, you might lay down something where people think, oh, that would come at the end. And what is that? And all of a sudden, you, oh, that's the finger. It's, I don't know, it's mesmerizing. I can go on and on. But I have a member question for you before we forget. Sure. A Super Nice Club member in Honolulu, Jennifer Nasino. Hi, Jennifer. She's great. She's amazing. She's one of the super nicest members of the Super Nice Club. Wants to know if you plan to come to Hawaii to participate in the annual artist powwow in the Salt District known as, and I was supposed to look up how to pronounce this, Jennifer, I told you I would, and I'm going to butcher it. Sorry, Hawaiian folks. Kaka'ako, Waterfront Park. Uh, I would love to. I've never been invited to powwow. Uh, I know it. this year it just happened. A bunch of artists that I know were there. Jennifer, I think it was can like you last week. an invite? Yeah. Yeah. Get me, uh, okay, so Jennifer me from the Super Nice Club is involved in the art scene. Uh, she's gonna she's gonna work on a um, an invite. She'll reach out to you on Instagram, right, Jennifer? You're gonna get an invite for powwow. That includes a does that include the plane ticket? Like, I don't. You know what? I'll fly myself there if uh, if I get if I get in. I like I'm you know it's Hawaii for crying out loud. Yeah, right. I've never been. Be, I've always wanted to go. That would be that's your your rates get lower for Hawaii, right? Pretty much. I, fact, I factor it into the overall cost. Higher for the summer in Dallas. Yeah, lower for the, the springtime in Hawaii. I mean, there's obviously um, some uh, times when it's not fair to over like to upcharge for heat. Like, if it's always hot there, I'm like, you know, well, there's the, that's just kind of part of the deal. But Well, you're at, I mean, it's not like Raleigh is not subject to humidity. Oh, North Carolina right? is the worst in the summer. It's, it's not just hot, it's humid. And it's suffocating. I've had a ton of synchronicities with Raleigh over the last like five or six years. The The best screenplay I've ever written so far is called Raleigh, which I'll send to anyone who wants to read it, by the way. Message me. It's really, really, really good. Just saying that I'm, I'm a really good writer. It's what I do. Uh, the, the jeans I'm wearing right now are made by Raleigh Denim. No shit. Great company. Raleigh Denim, I shout out. Them, if you're, like if you're a salvage person, if you're into salvage denim, you're into denim, Japanese denim, if you really know your jeans, it's worth the investment. I have been buying Raleigh denim for a decade, pretty much since they That's started. So top. Victor Did, and have Sarah, you ever right? gotten Victor yeah. on the podcast? No, I would love to. The guys, an art. Um, you should. I'll, I'll... And I want to get out there and play basketball with them sometime. Anyway, uh, so shout out to Raleigh denim, and there are more talking with you right now. So tell me, what's the magic about Raleigh? Because I keep getting like Raleigh into my world. Man, you know Raleigh is is really coming into its own. Um, I I grew up here. Well, I grew up in Cary, but I basically grew up in Raleigh. And it's, it's Cary, the suburb versus Raleigh, the city. Went to school in Raleigh city limits and my dad worked here and everything. So I keep it brief. Not that I just kept it brief just now. But um, but I mean, if you asked me when I left in 2003, whether I'd come back to Raleigh, I wouldn't, I probably would have said no, because there's nothing here for me, you know? That's what you're supposed to feel. Of, you think? of course. But when I like by the, by about ten years after that, when I came back in two thousand thirteen, I was like, wow, I'm I'm really impressed. Like, there's there are younger people here. Like, there's more. There seems to be more investment in being in Raleigh. Like, I think a lot of for a long time, a lot of creative people would just leave because they would feel like they needed to be somewhere else in order to be to make it. Um, and I would include myself in that. I felt like that for a while, and then. Businesses started to be it. It's a, became an tr- attractive place for business, and you know, there's nature like national parks and trails and rivers and oceans like not very far from from Raleigh. It's the smack in the middle of the state, so you know, four hours to the mountains, maybe even less depending on where you go. 
I think the closest beach is like two hours, six hours to Atlanta, four hours to DC, you know? So you're, right, you're not, right, right. and the airport is so easy to get in and out of. Like every time I, fl- like I've been a lot to a lot of places and every time I fly home, I'm like, oh my God, I love RDU airport because it's, I'm in and out in like five minutes and it's an international airport. So that probably won't last forever, but for now, yeah, great. take advantage of it while, um, while you're there. So, I mean, I think, I think what's great about Raleigh now, probably in the last two years, I've started to really sink into it. It's like Raleigh is a place that people want to be. And it's a place that people are investing. And it's a place that has energy. Like people are actually putting their energy into making Raleigh better. You know, it was always, um, you know, it was the seat of government, you know, so everything about Raleigh was like academic and financial. So government buildings, hospitals, universities, and it was pretty stiff. Like there, there didn't used to be anything going on downtown. And now there's a hundred and counting bars and restaurants. I don't know. I haven't gotten a post COVID count, but that'll come back. Yeah. But like, you know, like I said, hundred and counting bars and restaurants, new businesses are coming in uh, and bigger, but you know, Apple and just signed on to build a new campus here. The skyline is changing and the construction seems so far to be pretty intentional. I know for a while they were doing some of those kind of kit constructions where you would have a building that you could also find in Charlotte and everywhere else. But, um, right. but we have local developers that do uh, really good looking construction that actually takes like good, like they steel and brick and concrete and everything. So, I mean, I really like it as a person who likes aesthetics. And the really special thing I think about it is that like, it's still, it's still got a small town mindset where people really feel humble. And I think that I probably couldn't do what I'm doing if I lived in a place like that was bigger, mm-hmm. you know, even Atlanta, maybe, you know, maybe Atlanta, but because it's like, you're, you're, Atlanta. you're kind of just fighting through the noise and, you know, the bigger it is, the less personal it feels. And so, you know, here I'm, I have my property and I know, I personally know people in city government. It feels like I'm having a conversation when I submit something for site review you know not yeah, yeah. like you it's, know of course you, it feels like bureaucracy on the one hand but it's also like oh yeah i know you so i can actually just sidebar you and have a conversation about this like that's really awesome it's been interesting to watch over the decades now being on the west coast which was always associated with creatives you know mm-hmm. seattle portland los angeles san francisco and you know san francisco bay area the creative flight happened years ago there's it's not there portland you know, kind of tapped out Seattle because of tech, kind of a lot of them have left. And seeing Nashville, Atlanta, Raleigh, Savannah, seeing so many people move to the interior mm-hmm. of the country for this whole different, I mean, it's it's still happening. When we look back on it 50 years from now, we'll see, I think, that, you know, the, the creative migration from the West Coast and from the coasts yeah. into the center I of mean, the country. I think people are seeing different, like they're seeing options like that mm-hmm. and i think you know this this past year has really sh- put things into perspective for people and they're like okay i really or you know i could be dead tomorrow there are things that i am not real that i'm now realizing i don't want to live with and i don't want to waste any more time so they leave the big cities that where things just feel impersonal like i want community i want access to nature i want to live closer to my family i want like lower uh like fewer regulations and lower taxes and uh, like better attitudes and stuff and so people are doing that and i think that like 
it's important to want to grow. Like, I really get upset when people act all, you know, get an attitude about, like, Apple coming to Raleigh, you know? I'm mm-hmm. like, listen, yeah, it's going to make things grow a little bit, and there's always going to be things that are unpleasant that come along with that, but also, like, the alternative is that it doesn't grow at all, you know? Not just for specifically Apple, but anything. Like, anytime there's new construction, it's like, oh, you're tearing down the old buildings. I'm like, yeah, but they were falling over, you know? Like, you can have <laughs> falling over buildings and preserve the history of your place, and nobody would want to live there. Or you can build and be prepared for the future. So I really, I really like the growth. I get excited about it. And too many people in one place is a problem as well. So I hope it doesn't get too big. I'll just leave it there. But... You know, I I think the people who are in places of influence in Raleigh, like Downtown Raleigh Alliance and like the city government and different like organizations that are connected to and have influence over things happening, like are very kind and open people who really are excited and supportive and want to do everything they can to help you as a as a person who's making a contribution to the community so for me in my experience that's been like what that's looked like is you know i said to i i mentioned to somebody that i was interested in looking at retail spaces Mm -hmm. for a potential show that i might be putting together sometime down june 11th june 11th by the way reminder june 11th is the show Downtown Raleigh. Information at taylorwhite.art. Taylorwhite.art slash taylork on Instagram. T-A-Y-L-U-R-K. But so I, you know, I make this mention and then within two hours, I get it. I get copied on an email to, you know, Roxanne Lundy with the Downtown Raleigh Alliance. And it's like, that's a grant is op- opportunity is available to revitalize a storefront. And you don't really fit the, the bill for what we thought we were looking for, but we really want your you to open a gallery down here or a gallery show. Like, that's amazing. Like, what can we do to help? So I end up getting put in touch with the, the space. And at the time, I'm like, I, I'm thinking of doing a show, like, in six months, at least, mm-hmm. you know? And all of this was just happening. And it's like, oh, okay, well, th- the opportunity is now. It's, it sounds insane on the face of it. I've never done anything like this before. And I'm not right. Like my, my, the work isn't completed and like I have other jobs, but you know, here I am and this is it, you know, and this is what I'm going to do. And and it's like, okay, well, you're going to, you're going to rent a space. You're going to commit to investing the amount of money that you're going to have to invest in making, in paying the rent and producing the show and hiring the staff and all of that. And, uh, you're going to put it together in three months instead of six. And that was, that was not going to happen with just me just sitting there thinking about it. You know, it was like, oh, I'm going to make this mention to this person who's going to talk to this person. who's going to talk to that person. who's going to be like, oh God, I know Taylor White. Like that would be great. You know, we want, like, we want cool art downtown. Like this is great. So, and I feel, I feel appreciated and contributed to for, for my art, you know, yeah, yeah, and it, it's it's important to feel like that that a city and has enough people and peer group in there to support you. That's what makes cities and towns at certain times and places vibrant, right? Mm-hmm. And back to what we were talking about with with uh, chaos, order, and disorder. It's like always this Goldilocks zone: too hot, too cold, just right. Mm-hmm. And cities can't keep it up forever. They have their periods. Right. You know, it sounds like you're in Raleigh right now, and Raleigh is 
in a super nice place. It's, it's and the, really the job is. for you and the city uh, leaders is how long can we stretch this out, mm-hmm. right? So welcome to the Super Nice Club, Raleigh, North Carolina. Hope, uh, hope to get a lot of members there because once we have a lot of members in a city, we do events in the city. So if you're listening and you're from Raleigh, join the club, click on our page, Instagram. All you have to do to join the page, the club is just like, like us somehow. <laughs> Reach out somehow. Boom. You're in the club. Everybody's in the club. There are 8 billion people on the planet. You're born into the club. You're born being nice. But, you know, we can sort of codify it somehow with an Instagram like. <laughs> Sure. As silly as that is, it's got to happen somehow. Okay, so we do two things uh, to wrap these. The first thing we do is a fun one. They're both fun. Um, one's more fun than the other. The fun one is you get to issue a challenge to the members of the Super Nice Club and anybody listening, uh, something they can do to make their world or the world a little bit nicer. You got anything? Got a challenge for someone? Uh, yeah, you know what I do? Um, I think cool. during the last, the last year we've gotten off easy keeping the bottom half of our faces covered up i know a lot of people have really felt comfortable not having to engage with or interact with other people but it's really nice to remember to be reminded of what a smile looks like i think you should smile at people i think it's you know it i will acknowledge it's an intrusion to approach a stranger on the street and demand one of them however it makes you feel better and it makes them feel better if you just look at someone and like as you're passing them on the street just say hi like you don't even have to say hi you just like acknowledge that they're there and smile and i, th- I guarantee you they will ha- they will they might not know why but they're like man something about that like felt really good and a lot of the time it's like i i haven't seen someone smile in a year you know so after a year without smiles, folks, it's time to bring the smile back. I think you should smile at people. Uh, Some people we're bringing the smile will look back. at you like you're crazy, but I think you should push through that and see how it makes you feel. And see how it makes you feel, because it will feel good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Smiles always make us feel good. All right. Challenge accepted. Uh, I will try to smile at, at one person this month. <laughs> Wait. You could try to one person this uh, month. Mm-hmm. Smiles make a difference. Smiles and, and politeness. And then uh, challenge accepted. And I know everybody out there. Okay, let's let's bring it to the next level. Let's just do it. Let's not waste time. Let's do it right now while you're listening to this. Just this is so dumb. But whatever. Ready? One, two, three. Smile. Everybody smile. It feels good. It feels right? good. I mean, I think it I think good. that there was something. There's something. Uh, there's something scientific about it. And I don't remember exactly where I heard this, but I bet you could look it up. It's like if you put your face in that position you're more likely to smile yeah. more throughout the day it releases oxytocin it sure or something yeah. or 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 pepsi cola or <laughs> some of these chemicals uh and then finally um we flip the microphone or whatever you get to be the host for a second you get to ask a question of me any question i do my best to answer it oh, i don't know i don't know um, you know you've been you've been doing this a while i'd, I'd be interested to know of all the guests that you've interviewed, like, and you can you can interpret the word favorite however you want, but I'm, yeah. I'm curious as to who your favorite person that you've interviewed was, by well, whatever I mean, criteria you choose to measure it. By. If I don't say you, I'm in the doghouse, right? That's so, the idea. Um, you should say me. I know you're my favorite, Taylor. Duh! I love murals, muralists, the brains behind them. Um, I have enjoyed our conversation. If I don't know that I have a favorite, but it. A lot of it has to do with um, rapport, obviously. Mm-hmm. Also has to do with like, damn, I had no idea about that obscure 
profession that they do. And now I'm like, af- usually after the, the podcast, I'll go down a rabbit hole and like, because I get inspired by everybody. Like, because mm-hmm. everybody that comes in here is inspired about what they're doing, right? Um, I had to say my favorite is probably just in terms of just that was the most fun uh, and that made me just a bigger fan than I already was of the person was uh, Tegan Quinn, which was recently of the band Tegan and Sarah. Uh, Tegan is fantastic. She's just easy to connect with, real cool, smart, in all the ways person. Love Tegan. Um, Her friend, uh, Kari Andrews, was also great. He's a graphic novelist, and he's just got one of those brains that's like firing everywhere. He's a graphic novelist, writer, movie director. Uh, Kare with two A's was great. Um, I I hate to pick out two because other people are listening. They were all fantastic, but those are two recent ones. I loved talking to my son, Justice. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was on for the 50th uh, celebration, for the 50th podcast. My son, Justice, was really fun to talk to in a way that wasn't typical father-son. How are you doing, son? We just had it. We just wrapped, right? Uh, Molly from Winston-Salem was one of the first. She was fantastic. Um, if you're listening to this, Marnie, uh, anybody that I've interviewed, you're my okay. favorite. Everyone you've interviewed okay? is your favorite. You're my favorite, yeah. But favorite after Taylor. Right, because... Yeah. There is only one right answer, and it's that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So now we know. Anyway, so folks, listen, again, if you know people in North Carolina, and you probably do, and you've got this far, go to taylorwhite.art, go to her Instagram, forward information about her show to your people in in and around Raleigh. Uh, It makes a difference. It really does. Opening day, opening night, buzz. I used to, in a different life, uh, have an art gallery and it's really hard to get people to show up to these things, especially when we're not used to going to shows after COVID. This is a big lift and it would be a super, my challenge, I don't issue challenges, but I'm doing one here. My challenge to you, listener, is to think of somebody you know in or near Raleigh or somebody you know that might know somebody in or near Raleigh and send them information about Taylor's show. What's the best way for them to send that information? The show flyer is on the landing page of my website. That's it. Um, Easily done. And I do get nervous a little bit about um, the skittishness of post-COVID activity, you know. But at the same time, life goes on, and I'm hoping that this can help bring some life and some joy and some energy back into the community. You just have to be relentless. I also used to run a performing arts theater for a while and had to promote the hell out of shows, mostly musical. Um, And it's just relentless promotion. It sucks. It doesn't feel great. It's not fun, especially when it's your your own show. But have no, you know, you've been doing this for a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I'm also fortunate that, like, the community here is really excited. So a lot of my promotion is being done word of mouth by other people in the community. So I think it'll be a good a good turnout. I mean, I'm I'm not I'm not wired to handle five hours of socialization, so I've got to prepare myself for it as well. Well, good luck with that. Let us know how it goes, please. And thanks for your time today. Thanks for taking us on a ride through who you are, what you're doing, why you're doing it. Absolutely. Okay, there you have it. A super nice conversation with super nice Taylor white i love the i love the kind of chaos theory we got into even if if i was kind of clumsy about it it doesn't matter you get the idea right 
it is such a theme in so much of our shared human existence, right? It's one of the dominant themes. Could be the dominant theme. We're talking about birth and rebirth, etc. If you're wondering why I got into that weird riff in the intro about blinkers, I just hate it when people don't use their blinkers. Yeah, I get it. Super nice club guy saying hate. I'm saying hate. I hate it when people don't use your blinkers. It's not that hard. Use your blinkers. Thinking about putting out a super nice club t-shirt that says, use your effing blinkers. Super nice club. Would anybody out there buy it? Hmm? Let me know if you would. Because, you know, then I'll, maybe I'll make you a custom one or something. Thanks for listening in. Until next week with our amazing guest, guest number 70. And number 70 is, well, fascinating. Fascinating. My friend, uh, super nice cohort and member, Ed Gamester. Ed's a world strongman, competitor, champion, uh, rum drinker, aficionado, rum historian, uh, wrestler, rock and roll, death metal, superstar, writer, published author, comedian, throwback genius and you're going to want to hang out for ed gamester in episode 70 until then everybody stay nice